0: Welcome
1: to Stuff to Blow Your Mind from HowStuffWorks.com.
0: Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My
1: name is Robert Lamb. And I'm Joe McCormick. And we're back with part two of our 2018 Ig Nobel Prize recipients uh, episode. I... I was going to say, if you haven't heard part one, you need to go back and listen to that first, but you don't really. I mean, no, you it's... should go back and listen to it, but you can understand this episode without hearing that
0: one. That's right. We're just covering all the winners across two episodes. Ultimately, it doesn't matter which uh, order you take them in, uh, though the top of the first episode has just a brief section where we talk about what the Ig Nobel Prizes are. So if you're if you're not sure on that, I, I would recommend checking that little bit out. But if you've been listening to the show for years, you know that we continually do this. We do this pretty much every November, sometimes in October, but generally it's a November situation where we catch back up, see uh, what the the previous months or technically September's uh, um, honorees were you know, for the Ig Nobel Prizes and we just talk about them a little bit. Sometime in the past we've done – uh, you know, two hosts talking about it. We've done three hosts talking about it. We've tried to cover them all in a single episode. We've covered them across three episodes. This week, it's just uh, Joe and I, and we are doing it in two episodes. So some of these uh, descriptions are shorter than others. It kind of depends on what kind of meat is on the bone. Speaking of, if you haven't listened to our last
1: episode, it had some good stuff about cannibalism. So it you might want to check that out.
0: All right. Well, speaking speaking
1: of meat, though, uh, let's go ahead and jump into uh, biology. Okay. The biology prize for 2018. I got to start with a question. Robert, you know, some people are these, what would you call it? The unbothered eaters, the, the cool hand Luke's of eating <laughs> stuff. Uh, if you're everything bagel falls on the floor, you just pick it up and eat it. Oh. It's just a little more of everything, right? Robert, are you like that? Or are you somebody who can't can't tolerate getting a few hairs off the floor on your food?
0: Ooh, uh, I'm not going to pick a hair off of it. But if I drop something and it's just there for a second and the floor looks relatively clean, Mm -hmm. especially if it's in my own house, then, yes, I'll probably eat it. Uh, I I do have limits, though. I mean, there have been times, especially when I've I've been places with my son, who especially when he was a little younger, there was a, a higher probability that what he was trying to eat might fall onto the ground. Uh, I like I particularly remember eating these delicious fish sandwiches in Barbados at this place called cuz's cutters uh, cutter being the uh, uh, the Bajan I believe slang for a sandwich uh-huh. uh, but it was just like a delicious uh, fish and cheese sandwich with some Bajan hot sauce absolutely delightful and we were just eating it over just this uh, like it was just you know like gravel and uh, some bottle caps and uh-huh. and it was just on the on the, the, the brink of falling apart in my son's hands and I just I <laughs> just saw it in my mind, like that fish is going to hit the ground, the fish patty is going to jump out of the sandwich, Uh and there's just going to be no reclaiming it. Luckily, it didn't happen.
1: Oh, thank the gods for that. That's a a
0: deliverance. Right. But if I were in my own house and that were to happen, Uh I would say, no, we're not throwing that
1: fish patty out. We're going to pick that up, we're going to brush it off, and you can finish it. OK, parts two and three coming. Part two, you're at a restaurant. You find a hair in your soup. Do you just pick it out and keep eating the soup or do you eat the hair or do you abandon the bowl completely?
0: I think I have, the, I have a pretty good ability to quickly remove a hair and, and almost kind of delete the memory of it occurring uh-huh. and keep going. Especially as long as it's, you know, relatively good. If if the food was already offending me, I don't know. It might be different. Yeah. You like men in black pen yourself. Yes. It's essentially. just like
1: it's wiped clean. Yeah. It's
0: like, oh, did, not seeing it
1: now. Didn't see it. You're just going to keep moving. Okay. Here's the last one. What if there's a fly in your glass of wine or your cocktail or whatever? Do you still drink it or is the glass ruined?
0: Has the Has the fly simply landed on the glass or it is, is it floating dead in
1: my drink? Uh, that's a good question. It's, I just, just say it's in, it's in the liquid. It's in there. Well, once it's in the liquid, that is kind of gross. I mean, you can't help,
0: especially if you're drinking something outside, you can't help but have fly or even like a yellow jacket or something sometimes land Mm -hmm. on your drink and there's nothing to be done. If a fly is just floating in there, Ooh, I I might have to send it back.
1: Uh, sometimes those flies can be disease vectors. Yeah, they, yeah, you don't know what they were landing on before this. They might have been on sewage. I mean, I think it, that's that's a bridge too far for me. Even though it's gross enough if one lands
0: on something you're eating or drinking, mm-hmm. but there's something about the fleeting contact. As gross as it is, I can again, I can use the, I can delete the memory and keep moving. Right. But if I have to fish the,
1: a body out of my drink, I don't know. Well, here's another thing. Have you ever noticed if a fly landed in your drink, if you could smell it? No, I've never noticed that. Well maybe this is something to check out next time because that's what this year's biology prize concerns. So the uh, the, the paper in question here is called The Scent of the Fly by Paul Betcher, Sebastian uh, Lebreton, Erica Wallen, Eric Hedenstrom, Philippe Barrero-Ecaveri, Marie Binkson, Volker Jorger, Peter Witzgall, Oh, that's the whole list. That's oh, a lot well, of names. Well, Sorry. Congrats. I would have just et alled the crap out of that one. <laughs> oh, man. I probably should have. But yeah. Okay. <laughs> so uh, I've got a, a new word for you, Robert. Semiochemicals. You heard that hmm. one before? No, a new one on me. Semiochemicals. Okay, it just means chemicals used for communication, like semiotics oh, okay. and signs, yeah. study of signs and in communications. Uh, so the authors of this study point out that all living things communicate by way of chemicals. Quote, unlike sounds or sights, semiochemicals interconnect species across kingdoms and enable information exchange between animals, plants, and microorganisms. And I think there's some – Indication that's true, like that there are chemical signals that allow your body to communicate with your microbiome.
0: Yeah, all right. Or, or maybe I'm going out on a limb here, but uh, I mean it seems like some obvious ones would be the the, the smell of rotting flesh or rotting uh,
1: uh, organic material. Right.
0: Kind yeah. of sends a, a signal across a species.
1: Yes, you're communicating in a way with the bacteria that are consuming that flesh. Mm. And also I'd imagine that the smell of something especially sweet, the smell of nectar, et cetera. Right. You might be communicating with a plant. Yeah, exactly. So uh, a fascinating takeaway from this knowledge – is that the same one biocompound may be bioactive for different species in different ways. In other words, one semiochemical communicates something to both you and some other animal, say your dog or an insect, but what it communicates is radically different. And anybody who has a dog, in fact, probably is familiar with this because something that smells repulsive to you smells delicious to your dog. (laughs) Uh, so one example is, don't you just love the clean, fresh scent of citrus? You know, it, it's like a, it's a very calming smell that makes you feel like everything is spick and span.
0: Yes, unless it's actual spick and span, you know. Right. Oh, like, I don't know actual spick and span. spick and span is a cleaning product, right? Which I've, is that the? Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah. That's right. But it does. This touches on one of the key differences for me. If it's legitimate citrus, yes, it's beautiful. I I love the smell. But if it's something that is like a fake lemon
1: smell, then there's something uh, unnatural about that. Well, did you know I actually came across a paper while I was reading about this that found uh, that like the title of it was something like lemon fresh scent causes flies to lay eggs. Ah. (laughs) So lemon fresh scent, it's a chemical cue that says to you, ah, this place is clean and delightful unless maybe it's. The, the synthetic smelling kind that you don't like. but So this one might be why the fly would be seeking out, say, my tiki drink. Yeah, it's got a lemon fresh scent. It says to the flies, lay your eggs here. This is a <laughs> great place. Uh, and this is probably because the vinegar fly, Drosophila melanogaster, prefers to deposit its eggs in the peel of citrus fi- fruit as long as yeast is present mm. there. And so this particular study, the, the Ig Nobel winning study, focuses on a compound called z 4 undecenal or z four eleven al Undecinol or aldehyde is an organic compound that can be found in citrus oils. So z four eleven al you can associate it with, with a kind of citrus peel – Clear, oily liquid kind of thing. And it is one of these volatile compounds that plays a role in the life of multiple organisms. In vinegar flies, Z411AL is produced by females and it seems to play a role in the attraction of male mates. But Z411AL is also bioactive in other organisms. For example, Z411AL is produced in the anal glands of male rabbits, huh. such as the European wild rabbit, uh, and it's got a mini-splendored scientific name, Orictolegus coniculus. Ooh, very nice. Yeah, that's like – that should be a Bond villain name. <laughs> and so experts believe this volatile compound might play some role in territorial marking uh, in one – reason for thinking that is that like studies have found that when you have other male rabbits smell this compound their heart rates shoot up maybe like oh there's another dude around here not having it oh I got you um a related similar scent has also been found to emanate from the colonies of a seabird called the crested auklet, which is *Ethia cristatella*. And this scent has been tracked uh, to two associated aldehydes. It's not exactly the same. It's not Z411AL, but it's the chain-shortened analog Z4 decenel. Uh, uh, Z410AL, and Z2 decimal. And researchers think that these smells function as a parasite repellent and an advertisement of mate quality. Another another interesting link, like we've talked about before, between mating advertisements and the avoidance of parasites, right? Sometimes when you're showing off how good of a mate you are, what you want to show is, I got no parasites on me, look and see. Oh, and I also just included an image of what crested auklets look like, because they look really funny.
0: Ooh, yeah, they they're beautiful. These are some beautiful birds. And if you want to check out a picture of them uh, uh again the, the the spelling on that auklet is A U K L E T.
1: Yeah, they've got um so they've got crests like sort of mohawks going out of I don't know what you'd call that part of the face, the bridge of the nose over the beak uh that like shoot out forward and then they've got really funny googly eyes. They're, yeah, they, they're they, they are looking. like googly eyes those eyes. <laughs> But anyway, so back to the the compound we we're talking about, Z four eleven AL. But the funny thing this study found is that apparently humans are also highly sensitive to the smell of this particular compound. So it comes out of rabid anal glands, it comes out of auklets, uh, but humans also find significant the smell of Z411AL even in tiny quantities. And thus, humans are highly sensitive to the smell of the female fruit flies – or not fruit flies, actually. They're often called fruit flies, but technically they are vinegar flies. Vinegar flies that produce it. And there was an experiment that proved this – It was a wine tasting. Ah. So you got eight members in the study. It was uh, two women and six men who were trained wine assessors, wine experts, you know, those people, the sommelier types, uh, who I think they worked in the wine industry assessing wines in, in Germany. And each sampled the aroma of multiple randomized glasses across a few tests. So across the different tests, these glasses contained either nothing in the control condition or the scent of a female fly, which produces the compound. The scent of a male fly which does not produce the compound, various amounts of synthesized like lab made z four eleven al tested against a background content of nothing water or white wine. I believe it was a dry Pinot Blanc from 2013. And the results were that tasters could strongly detect the smell of a single female fly or the presence of isolated Z411AL in the glass. It was even perceptible at one nanogram. That's one billionth of a gram per glass. So even at the smallest concentrations, the compound was described as unpleasant and as an off flavor. At higher concentrations, it was perceived as a loud off-flavor. Off flavor, and so the authors write, "This supports the observation that one fly spoils a glass of wine after falling into it, provided it is of the female sex." So uh, it wouldn't just be the conceptual gross out of having a fly fall in your wine. You wouldn't have to think through, "Oh, this could be a disease vector," or "Oh, it's grossing me out for this reason or another." just if it's a female fly, just the smell of it Hmm. could be repellent enough that you would detect it and you would find the glass revolting afterwards.
0: Interesting.
1: So that's the funny part of the study. Obviously, you got wine, wine tasters like sniffing glasses with flies in them.
0: Right. And everybody loves a. I mean, anytime there's a a scientific article about wine or wine tasting, Mm -hmm. uh, people tend to read it, uh, even if it's relatively unamusing. But uh, I, I actually would love to do another episode in the future just on wine and wine tasting and the, not only the, like the biological aspects but, of course, the psychological aspects. Uh, we have an older episode of Stuff to Blow Your Mind that went into it a little bit but I feel like didn't really give the, 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 the importance of, uh, of, of priming and, and the, the psychological weight of, of wine
1: tasting, You know, your expectations, the story that's told about it, etc. I would be more than happy to come back to that. Uh so that's the funny part. The funny part is them sniffing flies. The interesting question though is why? Why are humans so sensitive to Z411AL? It's this compound that's very relevant to the lives of these vinegar flies, mm-hmm. right? So if you're a Drosophila, this this compound is super important to your mating process. But Why do humans find it repellent in food consumption contexts? The answer to this question is not currently known. It's not clear that this compound is of any biological significance to humans. So the authors hypothesize, well, let's see, what could be the reasons? Maybe it's reminiscent, they say, of, quote, other food aldehydes. So like our sensitivity to it could be part of a a general food hunting olfactory package. Hmm. Uh, But then again, why would it repel us in the context of wine? And we know that sometimes – Some food smells can be attractive in one context and repellent in another, like certain smells associated with cheese, right? Right. Yeah. Uh, There have been some wonderful studies that have shown that
0: if you smell the same thing, if you're told that it's a shoe, you'll be – Grossed out if you're told that it's a
1: cheese, then you'll run grab some crackers. Delicious, yeah. And I suspect that same smell, which would seem to be delicious on a cheese, if you smelled it on like I don't know a bunch of uh, uh, strawberries or something, you would probably think something was wrong with yeah. them. And you'd be grossed out. Yeah, uh, but I don't know that. That's just my. I, I'm supposing. Uh, But then again, they also hypothesize, the authors do, that the human sensitivity could exist in order to, quote, avert ingestion of fruit that is infested with vinegar flies, which as we were talking about earlier, can of course be covered in microbes and can easily be a disease vector. But at this time, we just don't know the answer. We don't know why this smell is so salient to humans. You would think there would need to be a reason for that, but we don't know what it is. Also, the uh, authors note that Z411AL is, of course, found in citrus essential oils. For example, uh, it's part of the smell of clementines. And the authors point out that it could play a double role in signaling, not just as a sign of food, but as a sign of of social significance, for example, mate location or territory marking in not just flies, but other animals as well. Mm. Coming back to this theme that the same compound that's, uh, that's very significant to one animal could be significant, but have a totally different meaning to a different animal, And ultimately, the authors propose at the end that they just want more research to provide a deeper understanding sort of of the, the ecology of smells, the way volatile compounds connect different organisms to one another. And they write, quote, a future challenge is to extend functional, behavioral, ecological, and phylogenetic studies to include vertebrates toward an understanding of the chemical vocabulary that interconnects us with other living things.
0: Huh. This is a great um – uh, prize winner for the Ig Nobel's, I think, because I agree. It, 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 it touches on two areas. For, for starters, it has that obvious uh, funny uh, mental image of someone smelling the wine and saying there's a fly in this. Mm-hmm. Uh, but then it does get into this like the, the, the deeper role of uh, the, these chemical signals and and the, the mystery of exactly why they're setting us off like this. Mm-hmm. Uh, there, there's a mystery to it.
1: Yeah, I liked this one a
0: lot. All right, on that note, we're going to take a quick break, and when we come back, uh, we will look at another 2018 Nobel Prize winner. All right, we're back. All right, so I'm, I want to talk about the, the Reproductive Medicine Prize. Okay.
1: So uh, this, I like how they have a special category for reproductive medicine because you know they've got to get more <laughs> of this all the kind are. of stuff in there. Yeah,
0: yeah, because there it's going to be a lot of uh, essentially a lot of penis jokes. I think are, are the typical winners. I'm going to have to look back at some past winners to. Uh, to to make sure that's the case, but it's certainly the case with uh, with this particular uh, winner. Uh, the title uh, of the study that is honored is "Nocturnal Penile uh, Tumescence Monitoring with Stamps." <laughs>
1: stamps like postage stamps?
0: Yes, with postage stamps. The kind you get at the post office? Exactly. <laughs> uh, and this was published in Urology back in 1980 uh, by authors of Barry Blank and Bolu. So. For this one, we're going to have to talk a little bit about nocturnal penile tumescence, or NPT, as it's also known. Uh, exactly what is this? This is, of course, morning wood. Is That's kind of the, the colloquial term, right? Uh, this is a, the common slang for it. This is uh-huh. often this is experienced by males, uh, a waking and perhaps unexplained erection. Mm-hmm. Now... The interesting thing, of course, is that the stiffening of the member in question is not the work of devilish succubi or experimenting aliens. I'm Uh, sure those
1: have been blamed over the years. Oh,
0: yeah. I mean that – obviously – because think of it. You have say – particularly if you have a pious individual, someone who is – uh, due to their uh, particular religious thinking, uh, you know, ab- abhor the uh, temptations of the flesh, mm-hmm. and um, you know, are, are staving off their their primal hunger. What what does it mean when they're waking up in the night or in the morning uh, with a, a, a full erection, like fully physi- physiologically aroused? Uh, and it had to be a demon. Yeah, it must be a demon, and then of course in some cases there has been uh, nocturnal emission. There has been discharge, mm-hmm. so it seems like some sort of act has taken place. Perhaps too, this is coupled with dreams. So we have all sorts of uh, of human complexities that are layered on top of that that can lead to some confusion. But it, but of course it's it's none of these things. It's not mm-hmm. the work of the devil, uh, et cetera. Uh, in fact, uh, you know, a healthy male experiences up to five. Uh, I've seen as high as like I've seen three to six also as a figure, mm-hmm. uh, but say five or six of these uh, a night as part of his regular REM sleep. In fact, NPTs are so normal that doctors test for them when diagnosing erectile dysfunction. Because, uh, you know, think of it, if these erections occur on their own during the night, then the patient's waking problem is likely uh, psychological rather than physiological.
1: Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah.
0: Now you might be wondering though, why do they why do they happen at all? Then? Good question. Yeah. Well, since they occur during the uh, REM cycle, there's always the potential for uh, sexually charged dream tie-in, uh, but it's not necessary. Uh, the main MPT theories actually have nothing to do with dreams at all. Rather, that the body may be oxygenating the penile tissue as a sort of sort of maintenance procedure, and the stimulant for this is thought to be the release of nitric oxide by nerve fibers in the penis. Oh, and then there's also the full bladder bladder angle as well. Hmm. Uh, the two often occur together, and scientists have, have taken note of this as well. So, for instance, an, a male will wake up in the morning. Uh, there is an erection, and at the same time, they perhaps illogically, it seems, need to urinate pretty badly as well. Mm-hmm. So some theories view um, uh, MPT or Morningwood as the body's anti-bedwetting, as the, one of the body's anti-bedwetting measures, and perhaps a wake-up call to the sleeper himself. Hmm. So this particular study, study with the stamps, it has to do with NPT's role in figuring out what's going on with erectile dysfunction. Not with where to mail it. Right. Yeah. There's no, no, no. The postage is not intended for mailing purposes. Uh, because, but uh, again, think about it. Aside from self-reporting, how do you figure out if a patient's if a patient has experienced an erection during the night?
1: Oh yeah. Because sir, well, I mean, I guess you could like have them come into a clinic overnight, right?
0: Right. Yeah. You could do some sort of observation, but. You know, there are a couple of problems with that. It's costly. You're, having, yeah. you're asking them to sleep somewhere else or you're – I guess you could – you're thinking about putting somebody to, in their room to watch them sleep. These are just not good solutions and you're also disrupting their life. You're, you're sort of disrupting the like, – the, the, their natural sleep cycles potentially by doing this. Right. So uh, there have been a few different methods uh, to figure out what's going on with the penis during sleep. Uh, one math- method that has been employed is a Rigiscan. So this is a battery-powered instrument that places one loop around the base of the penis and the other at the tip. And these loops tighten every 15 uh, to or 30 seconds. And the recording unit itself uh, that is attached to these two loops, that straps to the waist or to the, to the thigh. So it regularly tests to see how engorged and rigid the member is throughout
1: the night. Okay. Sounds cumbersome. I don't want to, you know, <laughs> cast – maybe that's a very useful device. Yeah, I looked at a picture of it. I mean, it doesn't look that bad. It doesn't – if it sounds
0: torturous, it does not look torturous. Mm-hmm. The other method is uh, – this popular is the penile plethysmograph. This is a pulse volume recorder wired to a penile cuff that
1: measures blood flow. Uh-huh. I know I've heard about – uh things like this being used in studies that are trying to detect physiological signs of sexual arousal. Right. I believe this is this one, for instance, comes up in Silence of the Lambs, I believe. It's
0: like something that they would put on someone and show them films of horrible things and see if they're sexually aroused by them. Oh, really? Yeah. Huh. So these methods, these two methods we've discussed are, are pretty accurate uh, and, uh, and are generally considered more accurate, uh, I understand, than the Stamps method. But back in 1980, the researchers in question uh, presented the STAMP method. Uh, Quote, a STAMP technique was developed to detect complete nocturnal erections for the evaluation of impotence. The test correctly detected complete nocturnal erections in 22 potent men and absence of complete nocturnal erections in 11 impotent men. This is a simple, useful screening test for organic impotence. So the idea here is fairly simple. You take a ring of postage stamps, so they haven't been separated, and you know they have the perforated edges, you know, so they pop apart easily. Okay. So you take this this ring of stamps and you affix them around the penis uh, in its uh, non erect, uh, unengorged state, and uh, then the individual goes to sleep. The subject goes to sleep, and the next morning they check for breakage. <laughs> If the stamps, (laughs) if that ring of stamps has broken, and again, it should ideally break easily because of the perforations, uh, this will be a sign that an erection has occurred. And this has some key advantages, right? It's low cost, right? Just the cost of postage, basically. Uh, Unless the cost of postage goes way up, right? It's gonna there's gonna be a regional determinant uh, determinant there. Also, yeah, don't don't buy rare stamps. Just buy. Buy the forever stamps, I
1: guess. Somebody doing it with like the thousands of dollars of stamp collector stamps. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah,
0: don't use those. But yeah, it's low cost. You can, it also can be self-administered with ease. Uh, you, don't even, like, you don't even necessarily have to have a doctor involved there, right? So that's part of the appeal. Doesn't sound
1: too dangerous.
0: No, yeah. It's going to break apart, uh, the, the stamps. Is. So it's, you don't have to worry about like constriction so much. Uh, The only real risk, of course, is accidentally mailing the penis. Right. Uh, But that's a joke. Uh, (laughs) Now, some studies have backed up the effectiveness uh, of this uh, particular method. 1988 paper titled Nocturnal Penile uh, Tumescence Monitoring with Stamps in uh, Impotent Diabetics found that, quote, the diagnostic value of this method is nearly the same as that of MPT recording with a strain gauge. And that's from diabetics research uh, uh, and clinical practice. Uh, However, the the problem with the stamp method is that there's always the chance that shifting around in one's sleep will simply tear uh, the perforated edges, uh, there's the a strip of, tear the stamps without an erection taking place at all, and that would give you a false positive. That'd
1: be a type one error.
0: Right. And then it's, yeah, but then the problem there is if you're, is if you're trying to treat some sort of, uh, um, you know, impotence scenario, then you start treating as if it's psychological when it's really a physiological ailment. Hmm. So... Uh, that's the risk. So why is this important? Well, because erectile dysfunction is a legitimate medical concern. And it's funny because it involves a penis and morning wood. And these are inherently and funny stamps. concepts. And stamps, like stamps and penis. Uh, it's really – I mean in retrospect, it's kind of surprising it took uh, the, the Ig Nobel's this long to honor these researchers.
1: Well, Robert, that one made me laugh and, and even sort of a little bit made me think. It's good to think <laughs> about, you know, what are the – what are the – Maybe not as perfectly effective, but cost-effective, safe things people can do to substitute for expensive medical tests. Obviously, sometimes you're going to value accuracy over – you know, cost effectiveness and stuff like that. But with with some of these things, you know, it seems like it's worth doing a cheap test before you spring for the expensive test.
0: Yeah, it makes sense to me. Uh, I should add that I also saw a criticism of the stamp test being that we're entering an age where there people have uh, decreased access to traditional stamps. And so right. that could be a, you know, a potential problem. The but, doctor says, you need to get some stamps for your penis. And then your response is, what are stamps?
1: Couldn't the urologist just have... Uh, medical stamps. Like, they could have stamps that you've no prescribed. postage uh, value at all? Or I guess it'd probably, probably be over the <laughs> counter. Would they need to keep that behind the counter? Yeah. Uh, just, but then uh,
0: what about the embarrassment when you accidentally try and mail um, something? You start mailing your Christmas cards and with you realize, your oh, stamps? I use my
1: medical penis
0: stamps Do they say penis cards?
1: stamps on them? Like, yes, that's totally clear? Say, yeah.
0: Warning, medical penis stamp, uh, no postage value. Yeah. Oh, uh, I think we need to go to another one. <laughs>
1: okay, let's move on. Okay, I want to do one that we can look at pretty quick. Uh, quick question, Robert. Do you read the user manual when you buy a thing and it comes with a manual?
0: I guess it depends on the thing. Yeah. It also depends on how excited about the thing I am versus, like, how much just pure drudgery is the thing. D- Does being excited make you more or less likely to read the manual? If I'm more excited, then I'll, I'll probably be more likely to read the, the, the manual because oh, I want to know how it works. It's like it's the thing's functionality is uh, – you know, I I want to be it to be a part of me. Mm-hmm. Where if it's something like a refrigerator, like I know how a refrigerator works and I really I don't want any more details. I just want it to work. You, and that's all I
1: ask. Do you read the owner's manual when you get a new car like Arnold Schwarzenegger no. and Twins? No. Did he do that? <laughs> yeah, he did. No. He's like uh Uh, There's a scene where they're riding around in a car and Arnold Schwarzenegger is reading through some book and he's – and Danny DeVito asks him what he's doing and he's like, I'm learning to drive. (laughs) 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 Um, It's been a long time since I've seen that. I might not be remembering correctly. But I think that's pretty dead on. Uh, No, a lot of times I don't read the manual either. I especially love it when there are manuals for things like the refrigerator that you just don't need a manual for. It's like if you don't automatically know how to use this thing, you're in trouble.
0: Right. And I'm not authorized to fix most things. And right. and it is if it is something I can fix, then yes, maybe I'll pop open the manual if I know where the manual
1: is. User manuals are sometimes worth looking at just to see if there's any hilarious bad writing or bad translation. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that can be fun.
0: I you know actually I will take one thing back. One item that I did read the entire user manual for was the uh, the InstaPot. Uh, oh. I've yeah. got
1: one of those. That's yeah. great. Free plug. They did not pay us for this. Yeah, I love it. It helps me. It's
0: a, I, you mostly use it as like a rice and bean cooker. Mm-hmm. Uh, but uh, it was one of these devices when we got it. I was like, all right, I have no idea how this works. I need to know how this works. I guess I'm going to
1: read the user manual. And uh, and then I was good to go. I know y'all don't uh, often eat meat at home, but if you're ever making like a like a you know tough. Pork or beef dish or something like that, it's just fantastic. Like if I have least, a human heart, that yeah, or I need a to human cook heart yeah. that you need to tenderize real good. It's it's great for that. It's really good for lentil dishes. Mm-hmm. It's the lentils real nice and uh like they, they keep their their texture and and shape, but they get tender. It's great. Yeah, yeah. We've definitely used it on some lentils. Okay, okay. We're we're getting distracted just gushing about our pots. The 2018 Literature Prize of the Year <laughs> is uh, w- was given to Thea Blackler, Rafael Gomez, Vesna Popovic, and M. Helen Thompson, quote, for documenting that most people who use complicated products do not read the instruction manual. And this was a paper called Life's Too Short to RTFM. I think that's Read the Field Manual, That not another F modifier. Uh, how Users Relate to Documentation and Excess Features in Consumer Products. So, this study investigated people's relationship with two aspects of consumer products, number of features in an interface, and product documentation, the manual. <laughs> so, the authors did two sets of studies to look at the manuals and the excess features in common household products. And they write, quote, the quantitative set was a series of questionnaires administered to 170 people over seven years. The qualitative set consisted of two six-month longitudinal studies based on diaries and interviews with a total total of 15 participants. And here's what they found. First of all, most people don't read the manual and most people do not use all the features on the products they have. Quote, people claim to read the manual and use all of the features of many common domestic and personal products only 25 percent of the time.
0: I have to add that clearly one of the reasons that this study was was honored is that it? It does something that the Ig Nobel Prizes frequently like. It 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 points out something that is blatantly obvious and backs it up with uh, with scientific rigor.
1: You know, I actually like studies like that. Mm-hmm. People react on social media when there's like a study that shows direct evidence of something that should seem obvious and then people respond like, duh, why'd you have to do a study on that? That's obvious. No, it's – I mean all the time we mm-hmm. have beliefs about things that seem obvious but they're in fact not true. Exactly. Tons of things that you think are obvious are false and when a study shows you that something you think is obvious is actually backed up by evidence, that's valuable information. Exactly. So anyway, rant end on that. but uh, so uh, but this this one might be less <laughs> less life and death than some of these things that people think are obvious. But I do think it's kind of interesting about a relationship with our products. Uh, okay, so here's another question. Most people don't read the manual and don't use all of the features on complicated products, but who actually does read the manual? Who's more and less likely uh, in terms of like the demographics? Turns out, women are less likely than men to read the manual and use all of the features. Uh, young people are less likely than middle-aged and older people to read the manual and use all the features, and more educated people are less likely to read the manual. Oh, okay. So uh, I don't know if these – If these groups actually compound on top of each other, I'm not sure whether that's the case. But if they do, you would say statistically, the person most likely to read the manual is like a lower education, older male. And statistically, the person least likely to read the manual is a higher education, younger woman. Okay. Also, people do not like excess features on a product interface. Uh, so excess features, they say, quote, are associated with negative affect, whereas core features are associated with positive affect. Again, this might be kind of obvious, but people don't really like all the bells and whistles. They like a product to be good at the main thing it's supposed to do. So
0: I wonder how most people feel about those food-specific buttons on microwaves, like oh, popcorn. Oh, I hate those uh, things. Well, whatever the other. The popcorn is the only one I've ever attempted to use and i usually and i have only used it like once and i burn popcorn oh and, really yeah so i just I, I just do my own thing i
1: I, you, I could not tell you what the those buttons on my microwave say <laughs> like there could be one that says human flesh and there could be another one that says like i don't know a bucket full of lollipops and i wouldn't know i've I not looked at them i
0: didn't figure out how the power percentage on my microwave worked until like the last year or two yeah yeah but then I started noticing, oh, wait, this actually – this particular microwave dish requires that I use 50 percent power. How do I do that? And then I have to figure it out. But I never looked at the manual. Uh, I stuck to my guns on that one.
1: So you actually follow instructions on microwavable meals. You don't just press 666 like a lot of people do.
0: I didn't know people did that. No. Some,
1: sometimes people do that. I mean that's a solid solid choice. Good that's number. That's a, a but... steady tradition in my family. <laughs> <laughs> Um, No, I think it usually comes out better if you follow the instructions. That's kind of like reading the manual. Also, uh, people hate having to consult the manual to figure out how to use something. Quote, reading of manuals appears to cause annoyance and negative emotional experiences, unquote. On average, people just want their products to be self-explanatory. They do not want to have to read all that stuff and deal with a bunch of extra features and settings. They want stuff to be easy and intuitive and they don't want to read manuals. So I wonder
0: what companies should learn from this. Like is there some is there a lesson here for the creation of manuals or the or the uh, you know creation of of alternative materials regarding the the use
1: of their products? That's a good question. Um I mean, generally, I think it should be the case that – If it's possible for you to make an interface, a product interface, self-evident, like it should just be obvious how the product works and how you're supposed to use it, you should do that. Now, obviously, you can't always do that. There are Mm -hmm. going to be lots of kinds of features of products that are more complicated. They can't just be totally obvious on the interface. Uh, So in that case, I don't know what you're supposed to do. Uh, Maybe you're just going to have people being frustrated. Hmm. Maybe... The idea is that all products should contain sort of, uh, to whatever extent possible, kind of walkthrough features, right? Like they don't – you don't have to go look at the manual. It just asks you what you want to do and helps you do it. A walkthrough. But who wants to do that? No, that's that's
0: really annoying too. Yeah, I don't want to do like a robotic walkthrough with my new microwave. I just want to use it when I
1: have to, right? Yeah, I don't know what to do about it. Do you want to burn popcorn? We're doing it either way. Exactly.
0: All right, well – on that note, let's move on to our next award-winning study. Let's let's talk peace, Joe.
1: Uh, okay, this is the 2018 Ig Nobel Peace Prize. Uh, it was a l- awarded to Francisco Alonso, Christina Esteban, Andrea Serge, M- Maria Luisa Ballastar, uh, Jaime San Martin, Constanza Catalayud, uh, Beatriz Alamar. Oh, and Beatriz Alomar for measuring the frequency, motivation, and effects of shouting and cursing while driving an automobile. Ah. Uh, and there are a couple of references here. One in the Journal of Sociology and Anthropology from 2017. Uh, Francisco Alonso attended the ceremony, but the authors write that, quote, evidence has shown that drivers who usually express aggressive behaviors more frequently tend at the same time to have higher rates of road crashes or traffic incidents. And so the situations in which aggressive behaviors arise tend to be very common, meaning that driver aggression is potentially a major traffic safety issue. And the authors administered a number of survey questions to Spanish drivers over the age of 14 to figure out their perceptions and attitudes uh, about uh, aggressive driving behaviors like shouting and insulting behind the wheel. And so I found uh, a long-form version of this that I don't know. is the, It seems like the long-form version I found – is not the study itself, but is a summary that was published after the prize was awarded because it's got some really funny (laughs) uh, statements in the conclusion, such as, let us also remember that people use cars to make love as well, which is clearly (laughs) better than eventually using them to get get us killed. Uh, And also, as it happens with these prizes, we need to support laughters because they are not compatible with certain negative emotional states, and for sure, they will lead us to peace.
0: Well, that's a nice sentiment.
1: Just to look at the data real quickly that they come up with, uh, they say that about 26.4% of people, of drivers, uh, admit that they sometimes insult other drivers or shout while driving. I do that. 41.6% say they never do it. I don't know. (laughs) Liars. Uh, I almost never do it, but sometimes they really get to you. It's a
0: real struggle for me, especially when I'm in the car driving the boy around and – I'm, I'm I'm really good at watching my language the rest of the time I, th- mm. I think but uh, when I'm in the car it's a little harder. Uh, luckily he mishears me. Oh uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, for a while he was convinced he or hopefully he's still convinced that I sometimes refer to other drivers as funkies, uh, <laughs> and uh, I should really try to do that
1: instead of what I am saying. That, that's a good one, funkies. You know, it's just funky driving. Yeah. A uh, uh, quick look also at the data about uh, reasons people self-reported to initiate some shouting or insulting other drivers. Top one with 22.5% was uh, reaction to breaking a rule. So when somebody else breaks a rule, that's when you – I will shake my finger at them when they do that. Uh, Also next at 21.4%, reaction to dangerous maneuvers. So when other people behave recklessly. Uh, Then below that at 13.6%, the other driver puts me in danger. Uh, also at thirteen point six percent, just stress, mm. uh, you know, stress. But that's that's people being self conscious, right? They're yeah. they're admitting, yeah, stress probably just makes me do it. Uh, other reasons are below that, uh, and then finally one point three percent of people say they do it because quote everybody does it. Ha. <laughs> <laughs> now something that's not reflected in this study, I just want to throw
0: in. Uh, I recently watched uh, the Ice Cream Man a 1990s horror film starring Clint Howard. Mm-hmm. And Clint Howard apparently uh, drove around yelling in his car in order to get his voice nice and raspy for the role. Whoa! So it's possible that that person you think is driving angry. It's just Clint Howard preparing for a, a leading role. Method acting, yeah. yeah.
1: All right, we need to take a quick break, but we will be right back with more Igno Bells. All right, we're back. Well, Robert, is it time for the economics prize? It
0: is, which, you know, the economics prize, it might not sound exciting, but it, this is a pretty good one. Uh, it's it,
1: often one of the funniest ones. It,
0: yeah, because I think it's because it, it plays well with humor because you think economics prize, you think uh, something dry and stuffy. And uh, in, in in most cases, they'll find something that has an instant pizzazz. In this case, the pizzazz comes in the form of voodoo dolls. Nice. Uh, so the uh, – Uh, The the, uh, particular paper here that's honored is titled, Writing a Wrong, Retaliation on a Voodoo Doll Symbolizing an Abusive Supervisor Restores Justice. And this was by Leng et al., published in uh, the Leadership Quarterly, February
1: 2018. Do you think this study was funded by Big Voodoo?
0: No, and I'll get to that in a minute. Real, really, the, there's virtually no voodoo in any of this. There's a, sort of a metaphorical voodoo doll. Yeah, yeah. There, there's no uh, Afro-American religion or folklore in this uh, particular study at all. Okay. But it does uh, center around a, a, a reality that a lot of us have been forced to, to face over the years, uh, unfortunately, and that is uh, uh, abusive supervisor figures. Mm-hmm. Uh Terrible bosses, mean bosses they exist they do uh, i've been i've been lucky i, I haven't had a, an abusive boss uh, at least in a long time, but uh, I, I I did have one briefly at one point. I remember it being pretty horrible to work under them.
1: What what is counting as an abusive supervisor here? Is this like like really egregious abuses, or just like being a jerk? Well, it can cover a wide variety of things. Uh, it,
0: it could be punching holes in walls. It could be um, it it could be just yelling at uh, at subordinates. That sort of thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, there are a whole host of um, behaviors that fall under this umbrella. Uh, and. Whether you're dealing with big big ones or supposedly little ones, I mean, it all can add up. It can all make uh, make uh, one's uh, work life rather dismal. Mm-hmm. And then, what are you going to do, right? Uh, hopefully, you're gonna, there's going to be a system in place, like via HR, to report such individuals. But as the authors of this 2018 uh, paper point out, there may be a, temp- a temptation uh, for reprisal, in other words, to get revenge uh, in some sense uh, at the, uh, the, the The boss or superior that is uh,
1: that is being horrible, but sort of by the dynamics of the workplace you can 't really do that right at least not in any kind of legitimate way right uh, i mean and
0: that 's something that they they point out time and time again like they're they're not saying uh, that uh, reprisals are good reprisals are bad, reprisals only just add more chaos to uh, the workplace environment and cost uh, the company money, et cetera. Uh, But uh, here's uh, uh, one of the things they had to say in the study. Quote, when a subordinate receives abusive treatment from a supervisor, a natural response is to retaliate against the supervisor. Although retaliation is dysfunctional and should be discouraged, we examine the potential functional role retaliation plays in terms of alleviating the negative consequences of abusive supervision or subordinate justice perceptions. So, yeah, basically the idea is if you're pushed down uh, by a terrible boss, mm. there is going to be this natural uh, inclination to push back in some way, right? So is there some way you can do that without making
1: things worse for yourself and others?
0: Right. Yeah, because I think a lot of times it is about that, like, what would feel good right now? Like, nothing would feel better than to destroy the boss's bobblehead, <laughs> you know? <laughs> uh-huh. But as fun as it might look on The on the Office or some other television show or film, uh, it's, it's not really necessarily a good move in the long run. Still, aggression uh, against such supervisors is common, as high as 76%, according to a cited uh, 1999 study in this paper. And this is seemingly on par with uh, aggressions toward coworkers as well, if not uh, more prevalent. Uh, the authors point out that the prevalence of retaliation suggests that retaliation may play a functional role in dealing with abuse. And there are various theories as to why, an adaptive response, a way of rebalancing the relationship, etc. So it could be, I mean, not to put thoughts in everyone's head, I guess, on this matter. But it could be as simple as, okay, uh, an otherwise okay boss like, raises their voice at you. You feel a little hurt. Mm-hmm. Their bobblehead takes a little dive off the side of their table. The universe is restored you know, because you're like, all right, you yelled at me and I didn't really like that. But the bobblehead is dead now. Mm-hmm. And you could see that as like, and okay, things are equal. How, are they really equal? Well, that depends on all the other <laughs> aspects of the, the, uh, the uh, office dynamics. So the authors here, they lay out a functional theory of retaliation, whereby engaging in retaliation reaffirms one's sense of justice. And supervisor abuse is the external stressor uh, that violates one's expectations of fair treatment. Mm -hmm. So to test this out, they made use of an online voodoo doll representing an abusive uh, supervisor. And specifically in the wording of the paper, uh, they use what they would call a voodoo doll task or VDT paradigm to manipulate (laughs) retaliation. <laughs> got to love that uh sterile terminology. Yeah, so so again, there's nothing actu- actually related to any kind of folkloric or religious uh, practice here.
1: So it's not really a ritual, it's more just like the concept of enacting violence on some kind of effigy. Right. Yeah. Such
0: as, you know, very much the the, the bobblehead in question. <laughs> So the paper argues that retaliation might be an important way in which we deal with supervisor aggression, even though it should be discouraged and only creates more problems. Quote, in particular, we have proposed and found that subordinate retaliation can directly influence subordinate justice perceptions. These findings suggest that retaliation not only benefits individual victims, but may also benefit the organization as a whole, given that justice perception is important for employee performance
1: and well-being. So this is kind of like uh, having the... Giving employees the illusion of some kind of retaliation, like that they haven't actually done anything to the boss, but if they just pretend they're retaliating, that that makes the company a little more lubricated, everything's okay.
0: They're not saying, hey, you need to have a dunking booth every year. And that's the only way you're going to restore balance to your company. Uh, they say the take-home is, that, is not that companies should encourage retaliation, but that they should include instead foster, quote, subordinate justice perception. And one example of this is having a zero-tolerance policy against various abusive behaviors. Uh, they also wonder if companies should rethink uh, what is referred to as deviant subordinate behavior. This would be like breaking the bobblehead. Okay. Um, because the individuals here, the the, uh, the the subordinates that are acting out, they might be attempting to resolve perceived injustices, and perhaps they really should be disciplined for what they're doing. But perhaps it also points to other issues in the workplace that have yet to be resolved. Mm-hmm. So it's like you fire the guy for breaking the bobblehead, or you make the guy who broke the bobblehead a, you know take a, a, a some sort of anger management toward toys class. Mm-hmm. Uh, but then you still have whatever the existing caustic dynamic happened to be between the uh, the boss and the the employees. What do you do about that? Like that it remains unchecked. So they're saying this this kind of behavior could just be a um, you know a, a canary in the coal mine, I guess.
1: So then, was the use of the uh, the abuse of the effigy task? Was, was, so was that? actually just to reveal some underlying attitudes or are they actually suggesting something like that is useful? I think
0: they just used it to reveal yeah. uh, in this case. Okay. Yeah. Uh, so they're
1: not saying like do a voodoo
0: doll task. No, no. The, yeah, the, the voodoo doll task is merely a, a part of the experiment and okay. not part of any kind of uh, solution that they are presenting. OK. <laughs> um, so yeah, again, putting voodoo in the title of the paper – uh it's it's maybe uh selling the voodoo elements a little too strong
1: well yeah and i think often to refer to like any process by which uh, like the mechanics of which are unclear mm-hmm. uh, i mean I think about like the phrase like voodoo economics and stuff like that. I mean it would be funny to sub in any other name of any other religion there, like calling it Christian economics or <laughs> uh, or Hindu economics or something. It wouldn't make much sense. I don't know. I think maybe maybe people should try to retire those uses of the word voodoo. It's a system of beliefs.
0: Yeah, you know, the, this would be a great excuse to come back at some point in the future and do a show on voodoo because we could discuss what voodoo is slash was uh, how it has been represented in our culture, and how uh, the terminology has been utilized. Well, in this case, in scientific studies, uh, mm-hmm. but elsewhere as well.
1: Okay, time to turn to the anthropology prize. Uh, very different kind of subject. This is going to deal with the concepts of learning and imitation and uh, and social mimicry. So you've heard the expression, obviously, monkey see, monkey do. Uh, The funny thing is that this is almost always applied to human children rather than monkeys. You know, people never say that about a monkey. They say that about a Mm four-year-old. And as such, it tends to highlight the very strong imitative tendencies – of human children. Do you ever notice how like a child will seem to spontaneously, almost unconsciously mimic actions that they see? Like they watch something on TV or an adult doing something and you'll see the child doing the same thing with their hands uh, that the adult is doing or the person on TV is doing or something without even seeming to realize it?
0: Oh, yeah. Like I, I mean the, the countless uh, examples from uh, uh, my own child's life. But I specifically remember, like, watching him uh, dance uh, while watching Frozen when he was, like, super
1: little. Mm -hmm. Like, he doesn't even remember this. But uh, during the dance scenes, he would move a little bit while watching. (laughs) That's funny. I mean, I actually have very strong specific memories about this from when I was a little kid. Like, of suddenly becoming embarrassed because I realized I was spontaneously – unconsciously imitating an action I had just seen an adult do. Hmm. Uh, For example, I remember being very young and I was like watching a dude in my neighborhood using a jackhammer to tear up a concrete porch on the side of a house and I realized I was like spontaneously pretending to use a jackhammer and making sounds with my mouth and I (laughs) I suddenly realized this and I was like super embarrassed. But we do this for some reason obviously. Why? Uh, one obvious answer is that imitation is an instinct related to what? The clear thing learning, right? Right, you see something you sort of do it yourself,
0: you you imitate and through imitation you learn.
1: Right, and so the idea here is that it's adaptive to have an imitation instinct because through this you can have transgenerational transfer of of ideas and behaviors. For example, you watch the skilled adult do something, throw a rock or make a hand axe, and you imitate their movements as a way of learning how to do the thing yourself. But there appears to be another biological function of imitation, which is that it plays a social communicative role. It prolongs prosocial interactions and generally promotes positive social relationships. And this latter role has been investigated in humans, but it's sort of underexplored or sometimes even thought to be absent in non-human primates like chimpanzees. Uh, There's clear evidence of other, other primates like chimpanzees, say, imitating behaviors of each other and of humans, especially in order to clearly learn how to do something. But what would be the evidence that there's this social communicative role in humans that's not necessarily there in chimpanzees? Well, one is this interesting fact that human children but not apes tend to what's called over-imitate. So here's an example I want to give you. If an adult is demonstrating the physical actions required to accomplish a goal, human children will usually – Copy directly all of the adult's actions even if they're clearly irrelevant to achieve the goal. And meanwhile, chimpanzees will tend to ignore the irrelevant actions and figure out what's the important part to get the desired goal. So an example would be an adult picks up a colored block – And then uses it to flip a switch on a box and then the box opens to reveal a toy. Human children, especially starting around two years old, will copy this exactly. They'll pick up the colored block and use it to flip the switch to get the toy. Mm -hmm. Whereas the apes will just skip the block and they'll just flip the switch with their hands and get the toy. Another version I've heard is like – You have a food item or a toy or something inside a box and you have an adult go through these elaborate rituals with their hands before they open the doors of the box and get the the thing out. Uh, Apparently, apes and human children will tend to copy all of the actions if the box is opaque. But if the box is clear and you can see the item inside, the human children will still copy all of the actions, but the apes will just reach in and get it. So the take
0: the real take home here would seem to be do not bring a chimpanzee to communion. Right. <laughs> because it's not going to follow any of the more ritual aspects of the thing. It's just going to go for the
1: juice and bread. Well, this is clear because it, this shows that even the presence of rituals seems to show that there's some role of imitation in human culture that mm-hmm. goes beyond just like learning useful skills that achieve goals. There's some type of imitation that happens between humans that seems to be purely social and it's hypothesized by some that humans are actually better learners than apes in in part because of this slavish copying of apparently pointless actions. You can imagine how this might help in like learning to perform actions that don't immediately result in a goal or reward, right? Mimicking behaviors with no obvious benefit also helps you learn more complex multi-step skills.
0: That's true. Plus, I also can't help but think of steps in performing tasks uh, where the uh – the importance of some of those steps might be lost on uh, on a novice exactly but later on you realize oh that's really essential if i should wear a radiation suit well while messing around with these uh, these rods.
1: Yes. So the question is why do human children copy more perfectly and more pointlessly uh, whereas, whereas apes don't to the same extent? And one potential answer is that the human copying appears to be for more than just learning how to achieve goals. It's also playing this social communicative role where the imitation itself is useful not just for achieving mechanical goals but for things like improving relationships between people. And this could be seen as somewhat parallel to Robert, something I know you've read about before, the unconscious process of mirroring in human psychology and behavior, right? If, you, if you've never observed this, just do a quick experiment. Watch two coworkers separately – and then watch them once they begin a conversation with each other. There's a very good chance that when they start talking to each other, you might be able to notice them beginning to show similar posture and nonverbal behaviors like gesturing without them seeming to notice that they're doing it. And this is an unconscious form of imitation known as mirroring. It appears to be a pro-social adaptation that builds feelings of closeness and rapport between people. And research shows that when other people mirror your actions, you have increased positive feelings. You trust them more. You feel closer to them. You're more likely to believe they share your attitudes and stuff like that. We like to to mirror each other's behaviors because we like to be mirrored. It makes us feel good.
0: Yeah, this is always something very interesting
1: to observe when we,
0: we actually stop to observe it. Uh, Because there's like – it's happening at a linguistic level. It's happening in the way we speak with our hands and how the other person uh, may speak with their hands as well. Mm -hmm. Uh, And of course we're not running through all of this before we have a conversation. We're not saying, hey, uh, do you want to – how much do you want to use your hands during this conversation? I'm thinking
1: about keeping it like mid-body level but I could go wider No, I mean it's generally entirely unconscious and the funny thing is – I mean we like it when it's unconscious. But like if you pointed it out and people were doing it consciously, it would seem psychopathic, right? You would think like, oh my god, I'm being manipulated. I hate this if you thought the person was consciously doing it. Mm -hmm. But nevertheless, we do have all of this clearly conscious imitation going on with with human children and with non-human primates with the distinctions we've talked about before. But – this study that won the Ig Nobel this year, the Ig Nobel Anthropology Prize, focused on testing for evidence of social communicative imitation in non-human primates, in chimpanzees. So it's taking issue with that previous consensus that there is no social communicative Imitation in non-human primates that for the non-human primates, it's just a basic, you know, mechanical learning imitation. And so the prize was given to Tomas Persson, Gabrielle Alina Sau- Saukwick, uh, Elaine Madsen – oh, sorry, and Elaine Madsen for, quote, collecting evidence in a zoo that chimpanzees imitate humans about as often and about as well as humans imitate chimpanzees. Huh. This was published in the journal Primates in the year 2018, so earlier this year. And so basically what happened is you had these researchers from Lund University in Sweden and they studied spontaneous interactions between chimpanzees and human visitors at the Furevik Zoo in Sweden. And what they found was interesting. They found that humans and chimpanzees spontaneously imitated each other at roughly the same rate, going both ways. About 10% of actions that each species performed were spontaneously imitated by the other. Though humans overall showed what they uh, called a higher imitative precision. So like the humans' imitations of the apes were more finely tuned, you might say, a little bit more accurate. But the apes imitated the humans at the same rate that the humans imitated the apes. Uh, There was also some congruity in the kinds of actions imitated by both humans and chimpanzees who tended especially to copy things like clapping the hands – pressing lips against the window, like kissing the glass, knocking on the glass with the hand and knocking on the head with the hand. I like (laughs) that one. But one thing you might notice uh, about these imitated actions is that they're common which means they're familiar, which means they're not new to the animal and they're not in service of any goal. They're not getting anything. Thus, the authors think that this is evidence of social communicative imitation. What's done for the purpose of bonding, building rapport, communicating intentions and so forth – Rather than for learning how to do new tasks or accomplish goals, Uh, another piece of evidence that the chimpanzees showed social communicative imitation is that interactions between humans and chimpanzees lasted longer on average when there was imitation than when there was none. Hmm. So the authors conclude that there's more evidence than previously thought that apes also evolved imitation instincts for social and communication reasons, not just for learning. So maybe we could bring them to communion. M- maybe. That's a good – yeah. So I wonder. I mean this obviously is in tension with some previous findings. So you got to wonder like what what's causing the distinction there. Hmm. Maybe chimpanzees are just more goal-oriented. <laughs> They know what they
0: want, and they they, they tend to get it. I wonder how this plays into any of the uh, Planet of the Apes movies, if this could be (laughs) used to understand uh, uh, any character motivations there.
1: Well, like if Charlton Heston had only mirrored Dr. Zaius more, um, they might have gotten along better.
0: (laughs) All right. So there you have it. Uh, The 2018 Ig Nobel Prizes. Uh, We've rolled through. All the winners uh, for this year in these two episodes. And uh, again, some of them we uh, gave more attention than others. And pretty much any of them touch on a topic that we either have discussed in the past or could easily discuss again in the future. So if you have particular thoughts on what episodes we should do in the future. Just let us know. In the meantime, head on over to StuffToBlowYourMind.com. That's the Mothership. That's where you'll find all the episodes of the podcast. You'll find links out to, to our various social media accounts. You'll find a tab at the top of the page for our store, our tea Public store, uh, where you can find all sorts of cool merchandise with our logo on it or stuff related to specific shows like uh, uh, you know, All Hail the Great Basilisk or uh, – um, the bicameral mind, or what, what's the our fabulous black hole shirt, Joe? Oh, the Sphere Catastrophe. Yeah, super cool. Get that on a shirt, get it on a, a sticker, get it on a tote bag, frame it, put it on the wall. All those options are open to you.
1: You can even get it on a phone case. Yes, I've been meaning to pick one of those up. Oh, a phone case? Yeah, yeah, yeah. they're
0: pretty swank, yeah. And I need to protect my phone from me dropping it.
1: <laughs> All right, well... Thanks, as always, to our excellent audio producers, Alex Williams and Tari Harrison. If you would like to get in touch with us with feedback on this episode or any other, to suggest a topic for the future, or just to say hello, let us know how you found out about the show, how long you've been listening, where you listen from, that kind of fun stuff, you can email us at blowthemind at howstuffworks.com.